It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording on the evening of Tuesday, March 2nd. I'm pleased to say this is now, I think, the second year of this show, as we launched it last year, right around the time of the beginning of the pandemic. And actually, tonight will be our second episode reflecting on this year of pandemic and its ramifications on Jewish life. It'll take us a while, I think, to figure out what all of this means theologically and existentially. That may wait a generation or so to see what this all meant to our children, what this meant to a generation of Jews and as Americans. But we can still take stock about what it has been like to be through this pandemic, acknowledging that we're still in it differently in different parts of the country and in the world. But noticing that this milestone, this marking of a year, is a good opportunity for reflection on what this whole year has been like and what lessons we've already learned. So last week, we heard from leaders holding together small communities, microcosms of Jewish life, a congregational rabbi, a head of a Hillel, a head of a day school. And this week, we're going to try to look at the macroeconomic picture, what's happened in our community, what we've learned as Jewish leaders, maybe some of what we can expect over the next year or so until we're really out of the woods. Tonight, I have three colleagues with me who I love talking to both about Jewish inside baseball things, as the conversation will be tonight, but also pretty much any topic. Real leaders in the Jewish professional space who I also know have had radically different professional experiences throughout this pandemic and hopefully can reflect a little bit personally on those as well. Hindi Pupko is the Deputy Chief Planning Officer at the UJ Federation of New York. Felicia Herman is president of the Natan Fund and also directs the Jewish Community Response and Impact Fund, which is a process that emerged at the early stage of the pandemic, which we'll talk about tonight. And Andres Bacoini is the president and CEO of the Jewish Funders Network. So first of all, thanks all of you for being here with us tonight. And maybe just as an icebreaker, I'd love for you to each just talk about your own jobs and maybe what's different about how you're spending your time today than how you were spending your time a year ago, if you can remember. I'll start with you, Hindi. Hey, Huda. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. I think I have what I call the funnest job in the Jewish community, at least in New York, which is that I have the privilege to wake up every day and work alongside a group of colleagues to think about how we can leverage philanthropy to advance the Jewish community of New York. Of course, we also think about Israel and the FSU, but the bulk of our funding is in New York. And that, Yehuda, was constant throughout. Obviously, the things we funded and the conversations we had were fundamentally changed, but ultimately, our jobs were incredibly consistent. The parts that changed, you know, we often laugh about the loss of UJA Tuna. Those of you who know have been in our building, we're quite proud of it. Many less meetings, but probably the real change is one of pace. Right. So, you know, that UJA, perhaps better than most, Yehuda, we have a process for how we do our work. We plan, we survey, we analyze, we love memos, we make grants. Right. There's a process to how we do things. 
that process was correctly thrown out the window. And so much of our planning was happening in real time. As the world was evolving, we were evolving. So the fundamental work didn't change, but certainly the pace appropriately did. Great. So I want to come back to something that we're going to have to address, which relates to that, which is the ways in which human services work sometimes is and should be subject to the same long scale planning processes. And in some ways, I know you're spending a lot of your time right now just getting people vaccinated who might fall through the cracks in our Jewish community. Planning would get in the way of that kind of work. It would actually be counterproductive to that kind of work. Felicia, what about you? You actually have changed your job considerably throughout this pandemic. So maybe you could give us a little bit of sense of where you are today and how you're spending your time as opposed to a year ago at this time. Everything about my job is different. I have been until April of last year, had been the executive director of Natan for 15 years. Natan is a giving circle. It's a group of emerging philanthropists who make decisions together about where to fund in Jewish communities around the world and in Israel. And we support startups. So we've been punching above our weight in terms of impact, but definitely small dollars in the Jewish philanthropic universe going to amazing new ideas. When the funders who were creating the Jewish Community Response and Impact Fund reached out to me about directing the grant fund, and I should say JCRIF, as we call it, has a grant program and a loan program, and I direct the grant program. It was just a priceless opportunity to be in a very different area of the Jewish philanthropic landscape and to be going from giving away $25,000 grants to helping to facilitate million-dollar grants. And I've been working closely with the JCRIF funders at that same relentless pace that Hindi was just referring to for almost a year now, really being able to fund some transformative things in Jewish communities across North America. And it's just been an incredible privilege while also staying in Natan. So I get to go back and forth and get a little bit of whiplash back and forth. Yeah, probably on some days that's great and some days frustrating. And obviously we're going to get into some deeper analysis later on of what you've seen on the grantee side in terms of the pivots and evolutions. You've probably seen way more than has seen the light of day because there's things that got funded and many things that didn't. We want to hear more about that. And Andres, how about you? I know that you used to wear ties. I suspect that that's not the case anymore. But tell us a little bit about what it's been like to kind of take stock of where you were a year ago at this time and where you are now. Indeed, no ties for a while now. Instead, there's a green screen behind me and I have a little bit of a studio at home. JFN is an organization that works with funders. Some of the folks that are using their philanthropy to impact Jewish life. And our job is to help them, to help them do more and better philanthropy. And what I like to say about the impact of COVID is that we went from being a vitamin to be a painkiller in the crisis. In the sense that folks were dealing with very urgent questions and trying to solve urgent problems. And the times were different. The need for support, the need for philanthropic advice to know how to have the best and the largest impact had an urgency that didn't exist before. And I've been really encouraged by how the Jewish philanthropic community stepped up in this crisis. It was unprecedented in a way, especially compared with previous crises. The previous that we have in memory is the recession from 2008, where philanthropy actually went down in the middle of our recession. Here we saw a completely different reaction. Philanthropy went up, funding practices became smarter, easier for grantees. Funders moved out of their lane 
and explored other areas where they saw need. So I think this year has been remarkably hard and painful for a lot of folks. But I think that the reaction of the philanthropic community and how the Jewish community as a whole stepped up is one of the good stories of this crisis. There are always things to criticize, but all in all, I think we're talking about a good story. Great. And I'll answer my own question, which is in trying to reflect on what's different today than then. And I think it would be useful, by the way, to study this across the nonprofit sector about CEOs and senior leadership of Jewish organizations. How is your work different? I have noticed that by not traveling, not being in airports this year, my ability to focus on the quality control of the work is dramatically different. And in my work, my business is ideas. I'm much more tied into the substance of our work than ever before because nowhere else to go. So that's just an interesting question of like, to what extent does this stop what you're doing for a year and do totally different piece of work because of this crisis? In some ways, the work is response to crisis. In some ways, you get clarification about what you're spending your time on. I've also just noticed in the Jewish community, as I've noticed people like chronicling where I was before the pandemic, for how many Jewish communal professionals that was, I was at this conference or that conference. APAC was one of the big ones. And what happens when we actually have no conferences for a year? How much work actually gets done? So here's the question I want to start with that I'd love to get all of you to weigh in on. A lot of us, myself included, predicted at this time last year, massive institutional turbulence, a lot of which didn't come to pass that there would be a lot of organizations that would have to shut down. Many did shut down temporarily for load staff. I don't want to make light of any of that. But we didn't see a massive institutional realignment in this period. And I don't know whether that was because our assumptions were wrong, whether because philanthropy intervened, whether because those changes are coming, but they're going to come in three to five years and not instantly. <laughs> or some combination of those. So as we take a step back and look at this field that we are implicated in, we participate in, and on your end, you're also responsible for in the deep sense, why wasn't there massive institutional turbulence during this time? And I'll start the other way around with Andres this time. So I think your description is pretty accurate. I think that at the beginning, I remember March, April of last year, we all thought that this was going to profoundly transform the Jewish organizational landscape. I remember we at JFN, we did a scenario planning exercise and we imagined different futures for the community. I think that a number of things happened. First of all, there was PPP money, the government support, and that kept many organizations afloat. And then, as I said, the philanthropic community increased significantly its giving. And it's not just the big funders. For example, many of us donated our tuition money to camps or we kept paying synagogue membership. So the crisis, in a way that we all feared, I remember I wrote an article saying that five communal systems are at risk, the camp system, the school system. It didn't happen. So we kind of relaxed. And I think I can't help, and I would love to see what my colleagues here think, but I think I have a little bit of a bittersweet taste about it. I think we're in a way missing an opportunity here by seeing this as a blip rather than as an earthquake, because after an earthquake, you rebuild differently, you rebuild better, you rebuild more flexible structures, more functional structures. And not that I desire or wish that any Jewish organization fails, but I think that organizations that had big comorbidities when they started this pandemic, to use a term from COVID, I thought they weren't going to survive and that would force a realignment. And I'm a little disappointed that we're not thinking like that anymore or not as we should. In other words, because the comorbidities remain for those organizations. The comorbidities remain, which has put a band-aid 
in terms of loans, in terms of emergency grants, and we haven't really solved. Let me give you just one example. The membership model, for example, the model of different organizations funding themselves through membership was broken before COVID, right? It's even more broken now. I can participate in synagogue life in a synagogue that is in Los Angeles. We're living in uh, New York. So why would I pay for membership in New York? But on the other hand, I'm not paying for membership in Los Angeles. So it's a broken model. It was broken for JCCs. It's a problematic model, right? The 20th century model that we haven't revised. And we haven't, you know, and I thought that this crisis would be an opportunity to, among other things, revise the membership model that we so much depend on. Right. So Felicia, from your vantage point, you join on and then ultimately lead this project that's putting, I think the original grant fund was what, $80 million? I mean, a huge amount of money, both between grants and loans into the system. And it's a little bit hard to tell whether that was to create a new system. You heard a little bit of that language, use the opportunity of this crisis. And certainly for a lot of those loans, it was to help hold organizations in place throughout this time. So how do you read this, whether or not there was massive institutional turbulence and how we managed to knock it out of it? How do you read that data? So JCRIF altogether, the first round of JCRIF, because we've just announced a second round for the grant fund, but the first round of JCRIF was $91 million split between loans and grants. And the two programs are really different. The loan program, which was a bulk of the funding, about $70 million, was really just to keep organizations together, recognizing that the business models and revenue streams of certain kinds of organizations were just completely devastated, just literally cut off overnight, and that there were institutions like camps and like JCCs that would exist beyond the pandemic, but had this massive cash problem right in front of them. That's what the loan program is for. And the JCRIF loan program also had the benefit that we came up with the idea for it before the government loans. So then there was the idea of Jewish loans, then you had the government loans and people were able to use both. And then I think that reduced the demand on the JCRIF loan fund because most people were much happier to take a government loan that would convert to a grant than they were to take an actual real loan. On the grant fund, we always said from the beginning that we were trying to do three things. Number one, make emergency grants. That wound up being about a third of what we did last year. Number two was opportunity investments. So giving oxygen behind new ideas and programmatic adaptations. That wound up being half of what we did last year. And that absolutely is creating new things for the future. And then the third piece, which was a quarter, was for what we called systemic change. That's what I think you're talking about, Yehuda, when you say we expected massive institutional realignment. And I think it is far too soon to say that that didn't happen because we've been in chaos emergency this whole time. Most people are still not even able to see to next week, never mind to see what happens with their organization in the future. And I'll give you a very concrete example. JCRIF, in tandem with announcing that the grant fund was renewing for this calendar year 2021, we also announced a public call for proposals for grants that we're calling reset grants, which are for exactly this, for people to think about how do we realign institutions for the future and what are some real interventions for systemic change to hit exactly on what Andres was just talking about, the comorbidities and also the enormous opportunities that are in front of us. And on the one hand, we've gotten a lot of enthusiastic response to that. And on the other hand, we've gotten a lot of people who have said, how could you possibly expect anyone to think like this right now? We literally can't think about what's happening next week. So 
I think those of us who are really blessed to be in a position where you can prognosticate or look at big systems ahead of you and understand cycles of history and how things morph over time saw from the beginning, this is an opportunity to really change things. And I think that that will be happening in the next couple of years. The last thing I wanted to say was I'm glad that Andres brought up 2008, because I think the reason why we didn't see apocalypse this time is because many of us are operating on the lessons of 2008. Even in 2008, where philanthropy went down and everything was sort of tanking all at once, you saw the government and philanthropists and all kinds of people working pretty hard to prevent apocalypse. People don't want apocalypse to happen, and they work hard to intervene to prevent it from happening. This time, many of those very same funders said from the very first moment, we need to prevent apocalypse from happening. And they wrapped their arms around the community in a way that I don't think happened exactly in 2008. And that plus the unbelievable amount of individual contributions from regular people who don't want their beloved institutions to die, that's what prevented apocalypse this time around so far. Isn't there another data point, which is the wealthy and the funds made a lot more money? In 2008, they were actually hit financially, so the percentage of their giving went down. But this time, actually, people made a ton of money. 100%. I also wrote an apocalyptic piece in March of last year, and we were looking at potentially the loss of money from the stock market, which would have devastated foundation and other endowments. We're looking at massive unemployment, which would have devastated individual giving. And we were looking at the complete shutdown of earned revenue. So it looked like a three-part total apocalypse. Thank God one thing went right, which is that the stock market, for whatever you want to say about why it happened, the stock market did not tank. And people who had wealth and endowments, organizational endowments, did not collapse. Yeah, but I would say it would be a little facile to say that it's just people didn't lose that much money, so they kept giving. I think that that's part of it, definitely. But I also think that a lot of people learned, as Felicia was saying, the lesson of 2008 in terms of 5% payout is a minimum, it's not a maximum. So a lot of foundations, I think that we surveyed our members around 50% of them went beyond the 5%, even though the 5% was more because the market had gone up. So yes, the lack of collapse of the market, the fact that the whole economy didn't implode as we feared is a factor. But I think that we shouldn't minimize the generosity of people and, and people realizing the nature of the crisis and the need to step up. Great. So, Hindi, I would appreciate if you could tie this to New York to kind of localize this a little bit, because the same question you would have asked about the whole map of Jewish institutions could be asked on a local level. New York is weird because it's not one community and because it's gigantic. But why do you think there wasn't the same kind of institutional turbulence that we might have expected? So I first want to state for the record, I don't know if anyone's keeping score, but I did not predict massive turbulence. Let the record show more seriously what we have perceived is Those that were weak before are weak now. Those that were strong before are strong now. And there was a subset of organizations, Yehuda, that really found their moment, that were sort of languishing and lost. And then this moment hit, and they're like, oh, my God, we have this building. We're in this community. Forget all those programs that people weren't coming to. This is our moment, right? So you saw a lot of those middle organizations also really leaning into the moment and frankly finding themselves. Now, will that persist? I don't know. But there is a moment of relevancy, particular for agencies that are good at taking care of people, right? That this was really their moment. 
And that's not just the classic social service agencies. As you said yourself, it's JCCs playing roles that they never thought they would play before. It's synagogues making vaccine appointments. It's not just the social service agencies. It's synagogues. Many of these institutions that I think some people like to sort of poo-poo and talk about as being of the past or legacy in a derogatory sense, thank God we had them, right? Thank God. And that's essentially what we're seeing. And I completely agree with what Felicia said. The jury is very much still out. So Yehuda, we put out essentially a mergers fund. And we said, thinking about merging, that M word that we never used to say before, we're saying it, well, we've got a resource for you, right? And we're opening up all kinds of resources. And the consultants that we're using, slowly but surely, two synagogues emailed me, seven synagogues emailed me, now 10 are emailing me, right? They need a minute to catch their breath. It doesn't mean that they're not now taking in the enormity of this year, the enormity of what they saw, the fact that they had never streaming all around the country and what that means. But you got to give people a minute to take a breath, take it in. And we are seeing definitely an uptick in merger and strategic collaboration conversations. And I think we just need to give people time. And I don't think they're just going to flip the switch and go back. I really don't. So let's stay on the legacy institution piece for a moment, because this was not just a March 2020 conversation. It's been a conversation for the past 20 years about the transformation from community built around legacy institutions to innovative and startup organizations that are, quote unquote, meeting people where they are, that are boutique in nature, that are not the vestigial of the 20th century. We were talking at the beginning about how there's nobody else who is going to make sure that Holocaust survivors living alone are getting vaccinated other than a UJA Federation of New York or a local federation. Nobody else is going to do it. Or the Jewish Family Service in San Francisco. They're just taking care of people. In some ways, it was like these legacy organizations for all of the criticism over the last 30 years about innovation and being slow and whatever were actually set up to do exactly what they were supposed to do. So what do we do to shift that narrative such that these legacy organizations are not viewed as well, you're not as interesting as this boutique little project, but are actually indispensable to the kind of fiber of a thriving Jewish community. Well, we probably have to stop calling them legacy. Like, it's not a compliment. I don't think anyone means it as a compliment. So I think we need to change our language. You had asked me earlier, Yehuda, about our covenant, our ongoing commitment to these institutions. And I hope this doesn't sound sort of cliche. Our commitment is not to organizations. It's to the community. And our vehicle to meet the community and advance community and help community realize its potential is, of course, a series of institutions. Some of them are 100 years old. Some of them are a year old. Some of them are 15 years old. But with each one of them, the reason why we fund them is because they are relevant and meeting people where they are. Today, we heard a story of the Bar Park Y, and she said, we took a Holocaust survivor to Ezra Medical to get vaccinated. And the nurse who was wearing a shaitel gave her a Yehi Ratzon, a Jewish prayer that many individuals say before receiving medicine of some kind. And for that Holocaust survivor, talk about meeting people where they are, right? You might not call them a startup. You might not call them innovative. They've been around, but because they've been around, they knew how to meet the Holocaust survivor where she was. So whether it was the Bar Park Y or the new Jews of Color Torah Academy Amud, all of those grantee partners were critical. We redoubled our commitment to them and remain relevant because the community needs them, not because we're committed to endlessly propping them up. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Last week, Tilly Schemmer from University of Michigan Hillel said something very poignant in which she said, we stopped thinking about numbers this year and how incredible that was to the business of running a Hillel because you're constantly thinking about impact as measured through numbers. How many students are we reaching? How many students are we touching? And one of the things that they did, which was remarkable, which sounds very similar is in the previous era, you're worried about how many students you're getting into the building. And instead, they were like, how many students can we get Shabbat dinner to? Because they're going to be alone in their dorm rooms. If you go to their website now, there's the whole like column of sign up here if you can come pick up Shabbat dinner and sign up here if you need somebody to deliver to your room. And you're actually just taking care of human beings. And in some ways, I think what you're pointing to is all of our institutions are in the human being business. And the seduction of the narratives around what is innovative, boutique, extra, user-driven, actually misses out on that just deep human dimension of, of what we're about. Go ahead, Andres. Yeah, I think that one of the great stories of this pandemic is that founders rediscovered the value of, agree with Hindi, we shouldn't call them legacy organizations, that of traditional organizations that sustain the community. You know, all of a sudden you realize that if you really want to operate in a city, you need the federation. You need the information that the Federation can give you. You need the needs assessment that the Federation can give you. If you want to reach a hundred and whatever JCCs in the country, you need the JCCA. And if you want to work across North America, you need JFNA. So there's a realization that these organizations have intrinsic value and can add value to the operation of an independent philanthropy. And I think this can usher a new era of cooperation between these organizations and funders, you know, we went from whatever, 20 years ago, there was an adversarial relation between sort of independent philanthropy and communal philanthropy. And then there was sort of federations trying to reach out to funders and serving funders need. And now we think it's, we're in the middle, like federations need the funders, but funders also realize the intrinsic value that, that the federations and these umbrella organizations can add to the philanthropic operation. And I hope that out of this emerges new models of cooperation or that the things that we're doing now on a temporary basis during the crisis become permanent. Yeah, I think the one place I would disagree with in the terminology, and I, I doubt you disagree with this, but I'm going to reframe, which is it's not intrinsic value. It's demonstrated value. Demonstrated value, true. There's no intrinsic value to the existence of any federation or on the assumption that they are supposed to do a certain line of work. It's when you actually do the work. And I remember early in the pandemic, I was writing pieces like this of like, what's going to happen? And here's some thoughts about a map. And I got this really angry call from somebody in the federation system who was like, we're sitting here, we're making these emergency grants and you're hypothesizing about the field. And I was like, you're doing your job and I'm doing my job. <laughs> and actually we need each other in that sense, as opposed to saying like, this is a valued piece of work and this is an irrelevant piece of work. And oftentimes that gets played out in both directions. In a year of big challenges, it's important to come back to big ideas. The kinds of ideas that inspire, ideas that start conversations, ideas that both speak powerfully to the moment and help us envision a better world. That's why the Shalom Hartman Institute is so proud to introduce you to Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas, being launched this spring, available both in print and online. The first issue tackles current events and systemic challenges alike, including whatever happened to Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and the communal implications of life in an extended pandemic. 
As a listener to this podcast, you're invited to claim your free copy of the inaugural edition of Sources. To get it delivered to your door or to your inbox, visit sourcesjournal.org today. Once again, that's sourcesjournal.org. Thank you. Alicia, let's go back to the grant and loan program if we can for a second, because I assume that like there was a huge body of money that you put into the field, but that if you would have given away grants to everybody who had wanted them, it would have been way beyond the capacity of the fund. What are the trend lines that you saw that were actually within the tranches that you were trying to do, not just hold up the organizations, but giving us a sense of where people wanted to use the pandemic to move towards? So one, of course, the obvious one is digital, moving things online, but not just can we give everybody a camera so they can get their stuff online, but what does it mean for everyone everywhere to have access to the best content, whether it's religious services or it's education? What does it mean for everyone to be able to watch that at any time? We're seeing now, I think we will see in the future, a real disaggregation of functions We've been using this language of functions and assets, echoing what Hindi said a minute ago, not what are the institutions necessarily that we need to preserve, but what are the functions that thriving Jewish communities need? And then who can deliver those functions effectively? So one of them is education. And you used to be limited to the educational opportunities that were in your city or around the corner that you were free on a Tuesday night. And now there's just universal access to those things that will change what synagogues do. If I can now choose between taking classes at the Hartman Institute or Hadar or taking classes with my local rabbi, there's value to taking classes with the local rabbi. So I'm not poo-pooing that people will find the thing that works for them, but we've never had that kind of universal access. So that of course popped up in a lot of different ways, different kinds of institutions, moving things online. And we'll see over the next year or two, which things remain online and which things people really will not give up doing in person. I actually can't wait for that trend. I'm trying to even push that trend. Like how do we get people back in person as soon as possible? So that was one area. Another area, since we were talking about innovation and legacy organizations is just that everybody had to innovate. So how do you give people the tools to innovate? I think when we're talking about some of the organizations that maybe we were poo-pooing a little bit a few years ago, it's organizations that said they don't have to change. They have their same people. Hindi, you even said it in the beginning, a JCC or maybe a synagogue is saying, oh, now I can stop running all those programs that nobody was coming to and actually run some programs that people want. That shift to what do people actually want from me as an institution? All of a sudden you saw that everywhere because you literally could not do things the way that you were doing them before. There've been some areas that have seen an increase in participation, not just this online piece, of course, that's a massive uptick for so many institutions, but day school enrollment is up. Why is day school enrollment up? Because day schools met in person and other schools didn't. And other reasons too, people wanted something values-driven. They wanted community. I think a lot of it was just they wanted to have their kids in school in person. And so now the question is, how do you retain that over time? So we're helping Prisma, which is a day school network, to do some research about why families came and what would it take to get them to stay and how could you even increase that momentum? What is it? It's the build back better, right? Like we can build back bigger summer camps. So JCRIF funders just made a grant that is public any day now to the Foundation for Jewish Camp to not only help them open up this summer, but actually to expand their capacity. 
So we know that there's pent up demand for summer camp. All the kids who didn't go last year, all the kids who were supposed to go for the first time last year, all the parents who are like, just send my kid anywhere, please God, get them to camp this summer. And so we're making grants to camps to do things like tent cities or yurt villages or temporary dining halls. There is this mentality that I think we need so much more of, of like, actually, how do we seize this and run with a new kind of momentum that we maybe didn't have before? The Jewish community has so much to offer people in their lives. We all knew that before, but so many of the things that we have to offer are precisely the things that people need so much right now. They need people to take care of them and they need mental health and they need things to be open and they need spiritual sustenance. And we have the ability to give that to them in a way that maybe people didn't realize before that they needed quite so much. I so relate to that word momentum. It feels like every day we just have almost carte blanche to get things done in a way that we didn't have before. We're just all like completely empowered. The money is there. The ideas are there. It's like, go, go, go. And to your point about camp, and you and I have spoken about this, talk about meeting people where they are this summer Many Jewish day camps in New York are also going to be offering educational enrichment at camp, right? So for kids who experience a loss of learning, all of a sudden for parents, it's not just a Jewish camp that's great on a regular day. Now your kid will catch up on all the math and English that they didn't learn this year, right? So it's really trying to hold people and not ask them to go to their most aspirational selves, but also to meet their very real needs that they're really nervous about what their kids didn't learn this year. And let's help them do that in the context of camp. So many pieces of what you mentioned really stood out to me. The whole piece about what are rabbis going to offer versus what are educational institutions going to offer. And we watched at Hartman throughout the pandemic where a number of rabbis said, instead of thinking about this as being a diminishment of myself or a competition, why don't I shepherd groups to come study at Hartman online and then scaffold around it so that A, They're good at what they do. B, I can facilitate the learning afterwards. And C, I can do my real job, which is visiting the sick and burying the dead and taking care of the spiritual needs of all these people and building relationships around it. So that's been very powerful. And our piece of data on this post-pandemic move is also, and it correlates to what you just talked about with respect to camps, our gap year program had double the number of applicants for this coming year that we've ever had. And the only way to explain it is people are looking to reconnect They're looking for wisdom, for opportunities. I assume a lot of 12th graders want to get out of their parents' house for a year and are now prepared to go 7,000 miles away in ways that they weren't before. I think that there are three things here. One is pent-up demand. I mean, Felicia and Hindi, they're absolutely right. There's pent-up demand. Then the second thing is there's a content and quality revolution, a quiet quality revolution. Let me give you this example. My mother lives in Buenos Aires, Argentina. On a given weekend, she could go to the local Facacte Museum in Buenos Aires, which is nice, but nothing special, frankly. No offense. Now, if she wants to go to a museum, she looks online for the Louvre or the Prado Museum. In other words, competition and the fact that it globalized and democratized quality, the same thing that I can listen to a lecture of Hartman now with the same easiness that I can go to my neighborhood synagogue. So that forces all of us to up the game in terms of quality. I see it with my annual conference. It's going to be two weeks from now where the competition for content is really different. But then that takes us to the third issue, which is it forces a realignment of my expertise and my role. In other words, 
when I was planning my conference, I said, I'm not going to now try to compete in terms of having the best speaker because competition is endless and because anybody can listen to any speaker on Zoom any day. What I'm going to try to do is reformulate my role into being a broker, being sort of a curator of content, of the content that is out there and facilitating the interaction of my members with the content and with each other. And that provides a much richer experience for everybody. The upside of stopping everything all at once and just creating total chaos. And it's a strange thing to say upside, just like it was strange to hear Hindi say fun in the beginning. But the upside to that is it forced everybody to strip themselves down to what do I need to do today? And what am I best at doing today? And what is my core mission here? And how do I get that done as effectively as possible? That built exactly what we're talking about here, a new understanding of how I can leverage other people's strengths. I can't do something as well as somebody else can, but I also don't have the time to do mediocre stuff anymore. So I need to focus on my strength and borrow, you know, leverage their strength. And the other theme that has just been profound from the beginning of this is collaboration. So JCRIF itself is a collaboration of funders who had always kind of worked together before, but never had formally collaborated, certainly not to the point where they were talking every single day or every single week and doing things together. JCRIF is also a partnership of JFNA, Jewish Federations of North America, and private family foundations. And I just feel like I have been part of more collaborative enterprises on the philanthropic side in this last nine months or whatever it is than I ever could have believed possible. So you're seeing that on the funder side, and that will redound to the benefit of the Jewish community for generations. That is part of the maturation of the philanthropic sector. And what Andres was talking about, the sort of way that people were oppositional in the beginning is no longer the case. In many cases, they really are much more collaborative on the philanthropic side. And then you're seeing it on the organizational side too. And that's both within sectors. So schools and schools or Hillel's and Hillel's and what does the national do versus the local and then you're seeing it across sectors too. How can this JCC and day school work together in different ways? And all of that is when we write the book about this, we're going to talk about collaboration and how we just came together in new ways. And that changed things profoundly. Andy, I'm going to put you on the spot for the last word. You acknowledged earlier that the three of us all wrote prognostication pieces, which allowed us to be falsified in what we thought was coming forward. Your job is as the head of planning. That's what you do. You think about the future. So give us one or two things to watch for. We're not out of the woods yet on this pandemic. There's new strains. There's political uncertainty in parts of the country. We saw the news just today out of Texas that decided to open up 100% and remove its mask mandate. We know it's going to be a tricky road ahead, but give us one or two things to watch for in Jewish communal life and philanthropy over the next six months. My instinct tells me that some of our worlds were expanded, but in other ways, they were really narrow, right? The people that we interact with, that we're allowed to interact with, that we see I mean, for me, it went down from probably hundreds in a week to three in a week in person, right? And what I imagine happening over the summer is a slow, a slow and intentional expansion of that circle, right? Where families come out and then they're with that family. And then all of a sudden it's a pot of 30 and 50 and they're going to synagogue again. I think I used to imagine a flip of a switch, right? Vaccine boom, we're back at Romamu, music blaring, lights on. I don't think it's going to be like that. You're going to see Romamu in the park 
and then you're going to see it inside and then you're going to see it grow and i think you're going to see that very slow god willing trickle back into larger spaces with more people but i think people are itching for that in-person connection but it's not going to happen like this so that's what i think is more likely to happen over the summer hopefully the weather will enable all of that to happen and i think you also see just a profound appreciation for community it was very easy to feel alone that was probably the most prevalent sentiment that we heard from folks, I feel lonely, I feel abandoned, I feel alone. And for people to stop feeling that way, if we can give the ability to people to stop feeling that way, to feel connected again, to feel part of community again, I think they will begin to open up and appreciate those communities and people that were there for them in new and different ways. I appreciate that. And I said at the end of last week's show, talking to a head of a school, a head of a Hillel and to a rabbi, that their work oftentimes goes unacknowledged, especially because it's just such close human services work, and it's measured by individual people, and some of whom can't actually thank them for their work. So I want to extend the same to all of you. You've been holding an enormous amount on behalf of our community over the course of this year, your eyes on what are our institutions going to be able to do in this pandemic? How are they going to survive? Institutions are made up of people, and we depend on them. And so I want to express my gratitude to the three of you for just the sweat and hard work and courage of holding our community together throughout this time. So thank you to Andres Pukoyne, to Hindi Pupko, and Felicia Herman for being on the show this week. And thanks to all of you for listening. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Harman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and Alex Dillon, and edited by Alex Dillon with assistance from Miri Miller and Sam Hainback, and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show. And you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening. Thank you.